Chapter Thirteen of the Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost Stradivarius by John Mead Faulkner. Chapter Thirteen. I had spent near a week at the Villa de Angelis. John's manner to me was most tender and affectionate, but he showed no wish to refer to the tragedy of his wife's death and the sad events which had preceded it, or to attempt to explain in any way his own conduct in the past. Nor did I ever lead the conversation to these topics, for I felt that even if there were no other reason, his great weakness rendered it inadvisable to introduce such subjects at present, or even to lead him to speak at all more than was actually necessary. I was content to minister to him in quiet, and infinitely happy in his restored affection. He seemed desirous of banishing from his mind all thoughts of the last few months, but spoke much of the years before he had gone to Oxford, and of happy days which we had spent together in our childhood at Worth Maltravers. His weakness was extreme, but he complained of no particular malady except a short cough which troubled him at night. I had spoken to him of his health, for I could see that his state was such as to inspire anxiety and begged that he should allow me to see if there was an English doctor at Naples who could visit him. This he would not assent to, saying that he was quite content with the care of an Italian doctor who visited him almost daily, and that he hoped to be able, under my escort, to return within a very short time to England. "'I shall never be much better, dear Sophie,' he said one day. "'The doctor tells me that I am suffering from some sort of consumption, and that I must not expect to live long. Yet I yearn to see Worth once more.' and to feel again the west winds blowing in the evening across from Portland, and smell the thyme on the Dorset Downs. In a few days I hope perhaps to be a little stronger, and I then wish to show you a discovery which I have made in Naples. After that you may order them to harness the horses, and carry me back to Worth Maltravers. I endeavoured to ascertain from Signor Baravelli, the doctor, something as to the actual state of his patient, but my knowledge of Italian was so slight that I could neither make him understand what I would be at, nor comprehend in turn what he replied, so that this attempt was relinquished. From my brother himself I gathered that he had begun to feel his health much impaired, as far back as the early spring, but though his strength had since then gradually failed him, he had not been confined to the house until a month past. He spent the day and often the night reclining on his sofa and speaking little. He had apparently lost the taste for the violin which had once absorbed so much of his attention. Indeed, I think the bodily strength necessary for its performance had probably now failed him. The Stradivarius instrument lay near his couch in its case, but I only saw the latter open on one occasion, I think, and was deeply thankful that John no longer took the same delight as heretofore in the practice of this art, not only because the mere sound of his violin was now fraught to me with such bitter memories but also because I felt sure that its performance had in some way, which I could not explain, a deleterious effect upon himself. He exhibited that absence of vitality which is so often noticeable in those who have not long to live, and on some days lay in a state of semi-lethargy from which it was difficult to rouse him. But at other times he suffered from a distressing restlessness, which forbade him to sit still even for a few minutes, and which was more painful to watch than his lethargic stupor. The Italian boy, of whom I have already spoken, exhibited an untiring devotion to his master, which won my heart. His name was Raphael Carantanuto, and he often sang to us in the evening, accompanying himself on the mandolin. 
At nights, too, when John could not sleep, Raphael would read for hours until at last his master dozed off. He was well educated, and though I could not understand the subject he read, I often sat by and listened, being charmed with his evident attachment to my brother, and with the melodious intonation of a sweet voice. My brother was nervous, apparently, in some respects, and would never be left alone even for a few minutes, but in the intervals when Raphael was with him I had ample opportunity to examine and appreciate the beauties of the Villa de Angelis. It was built, as I have said, on some rocks jutting out into the sea, just before coming to the Capa de Posalipo, as you proceed from Naples. The earlier foundations were, I believe, originally Roman, and upon them a modern villa had been constructed in the eighteenth century, and to this again John had made important additions in the past two years. Looking down upon the sea from the windows of the villa, one could on calm days easily discern the remains of Roman piers and moles lying below the surface of the transparent water, and the tufa rock on which the house was built was burrowed with those unintelligible excavations of a classic date so common in the neighborhood. These subterraneous rooms and passages, while they aroused my curiosity, seemed at the time so gloomy and repellent that I never explored them. But on one sunny morning, as I walked at the foot of the rocks by the sea, I ventured into one of the larger of these chambers, and saw that it had at the far end an opening leading apparently into an inner room. I had walking with me an old Italian female servant, who took a motherly interest in my proceedings, and who, relying principally upon a very slight knowledge of English, had constituted herself my bodyguard. Encouraged by her presence, I penetrated this inner room, and found that it again opened in turn into another, and so on, until we had passed through no less than four chambers. They were all lighted after a fashion through vent-holes, which somewhere or other reached the outer air, but the fourth room opened into a fifth, which was unlighted. My companion, who had been showing signs of alarm, and an evident reluctance to proceed further, now stopped abruptly, and begged me to return. It may have been that her fear communicated itself to me also, for on attempting to cross the threshold and explore the darkness of the fifth cell, I was seized by an unreasoning panic and by the feeling of undefined horror experienced in a nightmare. I hesitated for an instant, but my fear became suddenly more intense, and springing back I followed my companion, who had set out to run back to the outer air. We never paused until we stood panting in the full sunlight by the sea. As soon as the maid had found her breath, she begged me never to go there again, explaining in broken English that the caves were known in the neighborhood as the cells of Isis, and were reputed to be haunted by demons. This episode, trifling as it may appear, had so great an effect upon me, that I never again ventured on to the lower walk which ran at the foot of the rocks by the sea. In the house above my brother had built a large hall after the ancient Roman style, and this, with a dining-room and many other chambers, were decorated in the fashion of those discovered at Pompeii. They had been furnished with the utmost luxury, and the beauty of the paintings, furniture, carpets, and hangings was enhanced by statues in bronze and marble. The villa, indeed, and its fittings, were of a kind to which I was little used, and at the same time of such beauty that I never ceased to regard all as a creation of an enchanter's wand, or as the drop scene to some drama which might suddenly be raised and disappear from my sight. The house, in short, together with its furniture, was, I believe, intended to be a reproduction of an ancient Roman villa, and had something about it repellent to my rustic and insular ideas. In the contemplation of his perfection I experienced a curious mental sensation, 
which I can only compare to the physical oppression produced on some persons by the heavy and cloying perfume of a bouquet of gardenias or other too highly scented exotics. In my brother's room was a medieval reproduction in mellow alabaster of a classic group of a dolphin encircling a cupid. It was, I think, the fairest work of art I ever saw, but it jarred upon my sense of propriety that close by it should hang an ivory crucifix. I would rather, I think, have seen all things material and pagan entirely, with every view of the future life shut out, than have found a medley of things sacred and profane, where the emblems of our highest hopes and aspirations were placed in insulting indifference, side by side with the embodied forms of sensuality. Here in this scene of magical beauty it seemed to me for a moment that the years had rolled back, that Christianity had still to fight with a living paganism, and that the battle was not yet won. It was the same all through the house, and there were many other matters which filled me with regret, mingled with vague and apprehensive surmises which I shall not here repeat. At one end of the house was a small library, but it contained few works except Latin and Greek classics. I had gone thither one day to look for a book that John had asked for, when, in turning out some drawers, I found a number of letters written from Worth by my lost Constance to her husband. The shock of being brought suddenly face to face with a handwriting that evoked memories at once so dear and sad was in itself a sharp one, but its bitterness was immeasurably increased by the discovery that not one of these envelopes had ever been opened. While that dear heart, now at rest, was pouring forth her love and sorrow to the ears that should have been above all others ready to receive them, her letters, as they arrived, were flung uncared for, unread, even unopened, into any haphazard receptacle. The days passed one by one at the Villa de Angelis, with but little incident, nor did my brother's health either visibly improve or decline. Though the weather was still more than usually warm, a grateful breeze came morning and evening from the sea, and tempered the heat so much as to render it always supportable. John would sometimes in the evening sit propped up with cushions on the trellis balcony, looking towards Bahia, and watch the fishermen setting their nets. We could hear the melody of their deep-voiced songs, carried up on the night air. "'It was here, Sophie,' my brother said as we sat one evening, looking on a scene like this. "'It was here that the great epicure Pulio built himself a famous house, and called it by two Greek words meaning a truce to care, from which our name of Posilipo is derived.' It was his sans souci, and here he cast aside his vexations, but they were lighter than mine. Posilipo has brought no cessation of care to me. I do not think I shall find any truce this side of the grave, and beyond, who knows? This was the first time John had spoken in this strain, and he seemed stirred to an unusual activity, as though his own words had suddenly reminded him how frail was his state. He called Raphael to him, and dispatched him on an errand to Naples. The next morning he sent for me earlier than usual, and begged that a carriage might be ready by six in the evening, as he desired to drive into the city. I tried at first to dissuade him from his project, urging him to consider his weak state of health. He replied that he felt somewhat stronger, and had something that he particularly wished me to see in Naples. This done, it would be better to return at once to England. He could, he thought, bear the journey, if we travelled by very short stages." End of chapter 13